You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. afternoon and welcome to another edition of the Bose Nose Show. And I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, where we're having another beautiful spring today, but although it's been kind of dry here, um, and I'm looking forward to this weekend where it's going to rain because I'm a little bit getting a little bit worried about fire conditions here in Western Lane, Western Oregon in general. Um, so, a little bit of rain this weekend will be a welcome thing. Also, maybe hoping it's hard enough to fill up that last couple feet of Fern Ridge Reservoir. Uh, the Corps of Engineers let some water out in February. They never should have. So they're about two feet behind filling the reservoir right now. Uh, it seems to happen every year. Um, wish they'd learn their lessons. Uh, so uh, we've got a lot to talk about today. But you know, I want to remind folks that this is a call-in show. And, you know, we like to have people call in uh, 646-721-9887. Just press one and that lets Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, know you want to get in here on the Bose Nose Show. And we'll talk about what you want to talk about. But um, we've got, you know, a couple subjects I threw up there in, in my Facebook promos. And uh, I think, you know, we've got a fair amount to talk about today. Because one of the first things I want to talk about is this, this little study that came out from uh, Yahoo News, which was basically a compilation of ratings of states relative to their um, how good they are to retire in. That was done uh, by like Wallet Hub and a bunch of other uh, financial sites, and they kind of took them all together and, and you know added, you know, put a point system and then added the points together. And they came out with some rankings that basically, you know, um, the higher the score you had, the worse the state is to retire in. And the max score you could get was 150. And Oregon scored 125, which was the fourth worst state to retire in in the nation. And, And, you know, just so you know what the other ones that beat us are, New Mexico beat us with a score of 133. Uh, they were number one, and the biggest complaint there is the crime. Uh, you know, closely followed by Illinois with 132. Um, and, uh, you know, it's mostly about taxes there. And then, of course, New York was 130. Again, high taxes, but Oregon, you know, ranks 125, and, and I'll read you the couple short paragraphs they have about why they why they think it's the worst state, but I'll, I'll tell you some of my thoughts. Um, 
Yes, yeah, it says whether you're attracted to the Beaver State's majestic mountains, dense forests, or its overabundance of wineries and breweries, you'll pay dearly to reserve your spot. Americans have been flooding into Oregon for years now, and I'm going to tell you why I disagree with that kind of statement. And they think that they, this influx of new residents attracted by the state's lucrative tech jobs has driven up the cost of living to the point that only Alaska, California, and Hawaii are more expensive than Oregon. Yeah. So I, I just want to stress that. I, and, I, and I'm going to go back and tell you it's not about population growth. This has got a lot to do with some other things. Because if you look at the population numbers, we're, we're really not growing that fast. Alaska, California, Hawaii. Now, obviously, we understand why Alaska and Hawaii are so darn expensive. It's hard to get anything there, and they don't grow a lot of their own stuff there. Everything shipped in, you know, by boat and barge to most of either place um, or flown in, and uh, that drives up the cost of living. California, yeah, we get it. You know, how many people know somebody that sold their home in California for well over a million bucks that was tiny and bought a mansion here in Oregon? Um, that's part of the problem. But, uh, you know, as, as they keep going, you know, they talk about how every, you know, those three states are more expensive. Senior living facilities are no escape either. Re retirement living, and this is one of the, the compilations that they put together, ads, that's Retirement Living Magazine, adds that you'll pay the highest state tax rate on most forms of retirement income, although Oregon does offer a number of tax credits for seniors, but they obviously don't make up for that. This is no matter where you live in Oregon, you may struggle to find housing. Even rural southern Oregon has become desperate, and landlords are hiking the rents like there's no tomorrow, writes one Redditor struggling to make ends meet in rural in a in a rural river mountain town. So, you know, the things they really cite are our high cost of living, our high cost of housing, and our high tax rates is why Oregon scores so badly. And they try and blame it on, on population growth, but the interesting thing is is recently Oregon's growth in population has been slowly declining from about nine-tenths of a percent a year to last year, it was only six-tenths of a percent. And, and that kind of matches U.S. population has been declining slightly, but it was, it's been declining from about seven-tenths down to, to six-tenths. So we actually are right at the growth rate of the U.S. population last year. And we were only slightly above it for the couple years ahead of that. So it's not like we're some state that's growing gate you know, gangbusters that's driving up our cost of living. It's about how we're restricting the supply of housing through our land use laws and other regulations. It's how we're adding to the cost of them through fees and taxes. And, and the things we're doing that make Oregon more expensive. And the thing is, and, and you know, I will say we are you know, part of our real estate market is being driven by Californians moving out of their real estate market, which was driven up by government regulation restrictions on the supply as they passed, you know, many anti-development mandates in California that made it hard to build housing as fast as the population was growing. 
So therefore, housing became extremely expensive in California, and now they're bidding up housing here in Oregon when they sell theirs in California. Um, and they're moving here and then voting for the same anti-development restrictions because once they got theirs, they don't want anyone building around them. Um, and that, you know, that supporting that anti-development, anti-growth agenda for, um, you know, residential housing is, is causing the problem they ran away from. You know, we used to be considered a good state to come retire to partly because of the lack of a sales tax, you know, helped, helped somewhat with the cost of living, but it's no longer that way. And we used to be considered a good state to bring a business to. But a study by Ernst & Young shows that we've moved with the addition of the corporate activities tax and the family, the paid family leave tax, we're moving from being the 40th lowest tax burden on businesses to the 19th. In two years, we're making that jump in Oregon. So we're becoming a, a, you know, a, a high tax state for businesses. We're a place people don't want to retire because of the high cost of housing. You know, and, and if you look at some of the best, cheapest places to retire, Idaho. You wonder why so many people are moving to Boise? Um, you know, we're making ourselves uncompetitive for business, uncompetitive for folks to retire to. What's going to drive Oregon's economy five or ten years from now? You know, we need to think about that as we're developing policy. But, you know, the legislature's going the other direction. They've got a couple bills that want to add considering climate in land use decisions. They want to add a new goal in the state's already complex land use system in our, our 19 statewide planning goals that you have to try and meet with comprehensive plans here in the state of Oregon and that you have to kind of base all your land use decisions against. They want to add another one that says we have to now look at climate impact as part of that. Like that's going to help build more houses having one more layer and another place where anti-development groups like Land Watch Lane County can possibly appeal a development because now we have to also pay attention to that and they can kind of say, oh, you didn't make strong enough findings around that particular goal. We're going to take you to, to Luba and delay your project and cost you lots of money. And that's how a lot of projects end up getting canceled, time and money equal not penciling out and no no housing built. And then we wonder why we're ranked the fourth worst state to retire in in the nation. Let alone the fact that we also have a local state representative that's pushing a new tax on the wood products industry, which is a base product for almost all the housing being developed in Oregon and this country. In the middle of a housing crisis, in the middle of where it's way too expensive, we're going to raise the price of lumber with a new tax on an industry that's already heavily tax burdened, which we talked about last week. 
Do we just not get it? You know, that, that whole connection between government action and the cost of housing, what we're doing to suppress the, the supply, to raise the cost. I mean, in the, in the initial story, because I'm looking at the actual Yahoo story, in the story that was actually originally linked that just had the top 10 worst states, the only thing they noted about Oregon was the high cost of housing. That was their primary takeaway from looking at the detailed study. You know, we have to start paying attention to the unintended consequences of government actions and doing more thorough analysis of understanding what those, what those actions will create, what consequences, and, and making better decisions. Adding taxes to a base product of housing is going to drive the cost of housing up. Adding a new place, another goal to our land use system that's already restricting our housing supply incredibly because it's so arcane and complex that no other state in the nation's gone the direction that Oregon did with Senate Bill 100. I mean, everybody claimed that back when that passed that all the states were eventually going to pass something like Senate Bill 100. We're still the only state that has it. And we wonder why we have a high cost of housing. And yet these same people that claim to be, you know, concerned about housing and, and, and homelessness are the same people that are concerned about, you know, the, the disproportionate impact on people of color and minorities and, and, and underrepresented communities. Who do you think is hurt the most by high housing costs? Just the disconnect sometimes just amazes me. But we're number four. We're number four, Oregon. We're number four. Ah, uh, yes. Something to be proud of. The fourth worst state in the nation to retire to. And you wonder why so many people are jumping over the border in Boise once they retire. Yes, maybe might be some of the things that our government's done over the past 20 or 30 years and is continuing to do even today up there in the Marble Nut House or the bowling trophy, depending on how you look at it, that sits there in the center of Salem. But, uh, just makes me shake my head. So just kind of uh, moving away from that for a minute, I'll pause and remind folks we are a call-in show. And, uh, you know, we, we really uh, want to go and make sure you have the opportunity. Sorry, I was just making sure my phone was silenced there because uh, I was getting dumped uh, or something, and I was worried it was going to start ringing on me. Uh, student Run Radio. Just want to remind folks who are calling show 646-721-9887. Just press 1, and uh, that 
lets me know you want to get on a conversation. Again, 646-721-9887. And uh, I'll jump away from housing costs and, and being the fourth worst state to, to retire in and uh, talk a little bit maybe about COVID. Because, uh, you know, we're, you know, speaking of how we're, you know, making it difficult for business and uh, everything to operate, as some states have completely done away with mask mandates and many are lifting a lot of restrictions, Oregon's the only state in the nation that's making their mask mandate permanent by permanent rule of their occupational safety, you know, safety and health uh, administration or OSHA, um, you know, Oregon's version. Uh, it just, you know, makes me kind of shake my head a little bit but they're going to take Lane County and move us backwards in the restrictions. You know, we've gotten ourselves down to, quote, low risk, according to their metrics. And now we are going to be moving back into the high risk category, jumping up two categories. So now we're going from restaurants being able to have, I think, 75% capacity back to 25% capacity. Um, and that includes like gyms have to drop back to that and a bunch of other institutions. So, you know, here we are restricting business again. And, uh, you know, on top of our increasing taxation um, and, the, and the metrics that were designed were put in place back in November in the surge that was coming through the Thanksgiving holidays and the Christmas holidays. And it was a surge that we were seeing cases increase at an almost um, exponential, where they're almost doubling every week. And, and that's really a dangerous place to be on, a, on an epidemic curve. So, you know, they, they had some sense, at least in November. Now, fast forward to, to, to April here, Lane County just got to 50% of our adult population has had at least one dose of the vaccine. And we're 30% with both doses. And mind you, when you talk about seniors, we are basically 80% uh, fully inoculated with seniors. So our, our most vulnerable populations and our critical workers and all that stuff have been vaccinated in Lane County. Yes, we're seeing case counts rise, but what we're not seeing is we're not seeing the rise be exponential. It's been a slower rise. And we're also seeing less cases that are requiring ICU. And we've also not seen a death in Lane County in weeks. Why? Because those folks that were really vulnerable and had high mortality rates have been vaccinated. I wish we weren't seeing the case counts increase because that basically means people are letting their guard down and 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 not being careful because it's still dangerous. People are still going to die from this disease. Even if they've been vaccinated, there's a chance they can get the disease and pass away. Those that haven't been, even if you're younger and weren't part of that, you know, 65 and up population and you know, have that one in five chance of dying, um, you still, this, this disease has a 1% mortality rate in the general population. 
You know, if there's one jelly bean in a jar of 100 that will kill you, would you take a handful out and eat them? I don't think so. <laughs> so um, we still have to pay attention to this disease um, and be careful and not let the case counts grow. But the state should be taking a look at their metrics and revising them based on where we are with our mass vaccination efforts. And maybe we shouldn't, you know, maybe the guidelines, you know, once you get in, you know, we're at that between 100 and 200 cases per 100,000 over the last couple of weeks. Um, that puts us in that high risk. Maybe that should be shifted around a bit or there should be some other metrics looked at. How many ICU beds are available in our in our region? How many people are actually being hospitalized as a percentage of that case count? What's the rate of growth of the case count? You know, it, what, you, give me some other metrics that make sense with today's reality, not November's reality. That, that's my biggest concern about this moving back and forth, not to mention what it does to businesses. I mean, a restaurant that might have staffed up to be able to serve those, that many people that doesn't have the ability to seat outdoors is now going to have to, you know, figure out if they're sending staff home. Although one of the things I'm hearing from businesses, and I, I spoke with the uh, Tri-County Chamber up in Junction City last Thursday, is they can't get people to apply for jobs and hire people. There are restaurants that are only open maybe five out of the seven days a week and would, would used to be open seven days a week because they can't get the staff. Why? Well, they're hearing anecdotally from folks that, you know, if I get a job, I'm going to have to start paying my rent again. And I'm, I'm making just as much money from, from unemployment with all the extra stuff that's been thrown in by the federal government, the extra $300 a week, um, things like that. There are a few people probably that can't go back to work because of the restrictions the governor's put in, they can't get childcare. And I, and I sympathize with those folks. But, um, you know, this is a different increase in case counts. 10 to 20% of our current cases every day now are K through 12 students, when it was basically zero in, in November. We're starting to see a rise in cases in, in younger people who seem to tolerate disease much better than people that are older. So is, is that increase in cases really, you know, make some of the additional business restrictions apply? We need to kind of have, you know, our criteria for restricting businesses looked at carefully. We also need to look at whether we are actually incentivizing people to not work versus be employed, because that's also hurting our business here in Oregon. And I'm hearing that somewhat nationwide, but I'm hearing it a lot. In fact, I found out just from the business owners that were there in the room, and there weren't that many, because they you know, had to spread out for COVID and all that stuff, um, there were over 100 unfilled positions between the various business people that were there. 
including positions that have family, what quote, family wage compensation with full health benefits. Makes no sense that they can't fill those positions. While we are dealing with an unemployment rate that's far higher than where it was two years ago. So there's definitely people that are out of work. So there should be workforce available for those positions. But we've actually made it better for a lot of those people to stay home. Or we've, through our, our restrictions, made it impossible for some of those people to go back to work because they don't have child care. And don't get me started on how governments made childcare more expensive and less available, like housing. What, what amazes me is how government can slowly make something so expensive that it's unavailable for people and, and restrict the supply, and then propose government programs to, to provide that, that service. Because one of the things you're seeing as, quote, infrastructure in, in uh, President Biden's proposal is that the federal government's going to subsidize child care because that's, quote, infrastructure now. So, so, so people have to have it to be able to work. Well, you know what? The federal government, first of all, made it so expensive from the 60s and 70s that we started to have to have two-income households. I mean, back in the 60s, you could, you know, you know, keep a household under one income, you know, and have children. Can't do that nowadays. Between taxes, fees, and everything else, they've driven the cost of up so much, you have to have two income streams. So that means then you need child care. So government created the need for child care in the first place for the most part, with the, the exception of single-parent households. Then they made the cost of it go up. Regulations, licensing, you know, everything else they do. And now that it's become difficult to get, and of course in Oregon it's almost impossible to get because, you know, you can't can't gather and, and they're restricting, you know, how many people can be and they got to have so many square feet per kid, you know, because of COVID, they all got to be wearing masks, you know, don't do everything right. The state's going to fine you and they're going to double the fine just to make sure you understand the state's in charge here. Oh, my. Um, but now that we've created government's created the need for child care, then made child care so expensive and restricted the supply, it's now infrastructure. Now, everyone else has always thought infrastructure was stuff that cities provided. You know, roads, bridges, sewers, water, you know, that sort of thing, maybe electricity. Now it's child care. Uh, well, well, well. <laughs> and I guess I get it. 
Do I sound a bit worked up today, Robin, or is it just me? No, not at all. It's just another normal day in the neighborhood. Um, Just just remember that good thinking, the right thinking, will be rewarded. Yes, yes. And speaking of right thinking, we'll move on to something that really, really got me going today. Once again, Jay was on the losing end of a 4-1 vote of the Board of Commissioners. And actually, my first 4-1 vote that I was on the losing end was fairly early in my career as a commissioner. During the kind of period where the board had to make a 20% real dollar cut in Lane County's budget, where we were going from a $600 million budget the year before to a $480 million budget the following year. And that's when we had to decimate, you know, our public safety system and, you know, we laid off or, or, you know, let people retire and didn't fill a bunch of positions. Over 200 FTE were eliminated out of Lane County. Um, And this resolution comes up to the board to, and it was declaring and and honoring food for Lane County um, and their summer uh, lunch program for, you know, uh, kids, you know, that, that need it sort of type thing, you know, feel good. Everybody should, you know, how could you be against providing kids food in the summertime at lunchtime and all that stuff? And, and how could you be against anything honoring food for Lane County? They're such a great charity. Problem is it didn't, you know, have any actions that, that, that the county was taking. It didn't move any money didn't allocate funds, it didn't create any new positions, it didn't, you know, change any policies, make authorize any any actions. It was just a feel good we're we want to pass this resolution to show our support for food for Lane County because we're just going to do that. Well, I voted against that and I explained my vote pretty carefully. That is every single thing the Board of Commissioners votes on. If it's got a written order that we are voting on, there's a lot of staff time that happens before we ever come to that point where we're going to deliberate and vote on that that piece of paper. And that is somebody had to write that resolution in the first place. Some staff member got, you know, assigned the duty to write up a resolution honoring honoring food for Lane County and their summer lunch program and making some kind of declaration whereas statements and therefores and all that good stuff. And then that has to be circulated around the you know, staff and all that, and including our legal counsel to make sure that you know, we're not putting anything in there that might cause us to get sued. Um, and by the time it comes to the board, there's thousands of dollars in staff time and hours of staff time that are involved in that. While we're laying off 200 people, and cutting $120 million out of our budget. Well, my protest vote was loud enough that we stopped doing, and I declared at that time, I said, I am going to vote no on any meaningless non-action proclamation that comes before this board. And and I'm going to do it consistently. And And it was enough of an embarrassment that the county administrator 
and the following county administrator understood my position on those sort of things. And we had years where none of those sort of proclamations ever came before our board. Well, fast forward to kind of a board change here and, and, and think about September of 2019, where the board passed a resolution declaring a homeless emergency in Lane County. Bunch of whereases were written about why it was such, you know, a, a crisis, and a bunch of therefores were written about how we were going to do something sometime in the future. Of course, almost all the therefores were referring to stuff we were already in the process of doing. No new programs were created. No funding was allocated. No authorities were given to the to the administrator for extraordinary spending authority. Nothing. It did nothing other than signal the virtue of the board at that time that they're concerned about homelessness. You know, we're really concerned. In fact, we're so concerned we passed this resolution. Well, that resolution cost thousands of dollars. Thousands of dollars that could have gone to helping the homeless. And I... I'm having poodle serenades in the background. I don't know if that's coming through on the mic, Robin. No, woof, not, a, woof, not at all. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Um, Elizabeth is, was off uh, picking up one of our dogs that had been limping a little bit from the vet and had to get an x-ray. So uh, she just probably pulled in the driveway, and that's why the other two are barking. So, the alert system is working just fine. Yeah, my alert system is working well. Um, today we had a resolution come before us you know, about a very serious topic, and, and homelessness is a very serious topic too. And I, you know, I, you know, the thing is, if you want to to do something about something, get it in our strategic plan, make it a goal of the county, allocate funds, move programs around. Take care of it that way. Well, we had another one of these declaring a crisis sort of things come up today, and this time it was over racism. Now, mind you, I come from a much more diverse community. I grew up outside of Washington, D.C. Obviously, my last name is not exactly Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Um, You know, I may have paler skin than other people do. But, you know, I, I don't consider myself a person of privilege. I worked my ass off to get where I am. So did my wife. Our first couple of apartments had cockroaches that could carry a baby away. Uh, you know, we, we came up in the world by a lot of really hard work. Um, but I also, at the same time, growing up in such a diverse community, Grew up with a lot of people that don't look like me and and uh, understand their experiences uh, in a lot of ways. And, in fact, have, you know, had folks in my wedding party in the state of North Carolina in 1982 that some of the residents local to that area where we got married in North Carolina, because that's where Elizabeth was from, uh, that would not allow them to escort them to their seats. So you can imagine, you know, I, I'm fully aware of what racism is. 
And, and to me, there's no excuse for it. We are one race. We are the human race. There's no subdividing us. There's no way you can categorize us in different subgroups and then say one of those subgroups is superior to another group. You know, any of that's wrong. But once again, here we have a bunch of therefores. You know, we're declaring it a public health emergency. And or whereas is, is why we need to do it. And then therefores, every one of the therefores but one is actions we are already in process of doing in Lane County. No new programs were created, no new funding was allocated, no new authorities were given purely to show our virtue that we are concerned about racism as a health issue, which it is, because a lot of you know, where racism actually shows up is how disproportionately represented on the lower income and, and economic uh, ranks our minority populations are because of past racism, because of policies that Im impacted them, where people thought they were helping them. I mean, some of the policies from the war on poverty of President Johnson started and continued on well into the 70s um, actually did more harm to some of those communities than it did, did help and put them further into poverty. Incentivizing single parent households um, and then the war on drugs, another government, you know, effort, you know, that sounded great, you know, who could be against the war on drugs, uh, actually created even worse conditions for a lot of those minorities uh, in inner cities in particular. Um, you know, only thing that was not in action we're currently doing was a bullet point to encourage other elected bodies to pass a similar resolution that basically does nothing. So that was the only new action in that thing. Now, how many thousands of dollars, because, and this one was probably more expensive than most because the, the folks involved in this are some of our more higher salaried people because it was coming out of our public health department. So these are folks that are public health practitioners, i.e., you know, medical side of things where we have to pay you know, pretty good wages to keep people employed in public sector jobs. You know, we have so thousands of dollars again so that the board could have a vote to show that they're concerned. I mean, can't they just publicly state, like I just did, I, I believe that racism is wrong, has no place in modern society, Anyone that has half a brain and understands, you know, uh, human genetics, that skin color is a bare change in, in genetic material from one person to the next. There is nothing else that comes with that. No inherent traits that make one person superior over another. And if we can supply equality of opportunity in our society, Everyone should get, you know, distributed amongst our, our income and economic conditions equally. And people shouldn't even care. But, you know, we have to, we have to virtue signal. 
know, we have to just, you know, do these things that, you know, basically say, you know, I'm, you know, look at us. We're, we're declaring a public health emergency. And mind you, almost everything they cited relative when it came to trying to tie racism to public health, you substitute the word poverty. Because really, if you look at economic class, there's really no difference between white and people of color's COVID mortality and morbidity if you compare economic class to economic class. Because the real issue is, you know, people in poverty tend to eat poor diets, not um, access health care because of the cost, you know, all sorts of things. So they tend to have the higher uh, conditions that make COVID dangerous. They tend to have type 2 diabetes. They tend to have obesity. They might have undiagnosed heart conditions and, and several other aspects. You know, living in poverty usually means they're living in poorer housing conditions. It probably means they're also getting less, you know, more stressed and anxiety. All the things that suppress the immune system. That's the issue. So what should we really be working on if it was about the public health aspect of this? We should be fighting poverty. Poverty is the number one indicator of poor health outcomes. What has been historically the single greatest thing in fighting poverty? Capitalism. And capitalism actually, just like folks that are anti-racist, has one thing very in common with that. In fact, one, one of the things I did appreciate was staff actually gave a definition of racism today. And I, would, and I wanted that because it's wandered a little bit. We've talked about this on the Bose Nose Show, where everything from trees and mathematics and time becomes racist. But it, their definition is actually a very good one, and I'm going to read it. And it's, it was written by um, Kamara um, Phyllis-Jones, uh, who's an MD and a PhD, and she says, racism is a system of structuring opportunity and assigning value based on the social interpretation of how one looks, which is what we call races in parentheses, that unfairly disadvantages some individuals and communities, unfairly advantages other individuals and communities, and saps the strength of the whole society through waste of human resources. That is a key phrase in there because capitalism is also against not having full participation and valuing everybody. Because in a true capitalist society, you want everyone in your community producing at their highest ability, because that's good for the economy. And to have part of them suppressed through racism and not you know, fully participating wastes part of that human resource. Capitalism doesn't want to waste resources. So capitalism is anti-racist. It's also anti-poverty. And what we saw in recent years was 
policies at the federal level that were pro-capitalism. And what we saw was a steady decrease in the poverty rate in the U.S. to its lowest level in over 20 years. Turning around now, though, what we also saw was some of the lowest unemployment ever recorded in minority communities. So that decrease in poverty, increase in employment leads to better health outcomes. So we really should have been having a declaration declaring poverty a public health crisis. And therefore, we will embrace capitalism. But you know what? Some of the definitions of racism, in particular parts of critical race theory, are actually more derived from Marxism, which has never been shown to pull a population out of poverty in any significant way. Because what, what's happened as you look at, you know, what we consider impoverished in the U.S., in many countries, in particular a lot of countries that are socialist and communist, would be pretty damn well off. So, yes, I took the great risk of somebody misinterpreting my vote against this, this declaration of, of declaring, you know, racism a public health crisis to mean that for some some reason I was pro-racism. No, I'm against just meaningless virtue signaling that costs the county money and resources that could have been used fighting the very things this declaration was about. I want to address the real issues. Take actions. Make sure our strategic plan is addressing those. That's really where we ought to be going. I'm going to take a breath and remind folks, this is a call-in show, 646-721-9887. Just press one if you want to get in on the show. And, uh, Again, I'll just remind you, 646-721-9887, press 1. That lets Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, know you want to get in on the show because some people do call in to listen because they're away from their computers. You know, you can walk around with a cell phone and listen to the show live. Of course, you can always listen to it pre-recorded, too, because we basically save these things forever as basically like a podcast. So, Robin, I saw you pop up. You got something you want to add to that last conversation, or you got something, another tangent you want to take me off on? (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's see. To start with, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. And (laughs) I do that because of an article that I was reading. A couple things that are on my bitch and moan list. One of them is, of course, the EMX. The other one is the per-mile tax that apparently Oregon has been trying to push through. And one of the articles here is uh, uh, they're talking about 
in 2026, the suggestion about making it mandatory, and says if passed, vehicles miles traveled fee wouldn't be affected until July 2026, and that's just the beginning. Of course, what they say is that owners of new vehicles from 2027 that don't use gas or get 30 miles or more per gallon um, will would be subject to the fee. Drivers would also be able to opt out of the tracking tracking their miles and pay a flat annual fee of $400 per year. And of course, that's on top of your registration and other stuff that they have. Welcome to Oregon. Of course, I can never afford a new car, so I don't have to worry about it. And mine will never die. Yeah, so I have a question. I don't know whether they whether what the answer to this is because i don't have an electric vehicle do you know you see these electrical vehicles charging stations and a lot of public agencies including lane county have put them out in some of their parking lots Uh uh-huh when you plug into that with your car do you have to put a credit card in and get charged for the electricity um from what i've seen that depends on where you get it some places actually like hotels and stuff actually offer it for free yeah, well, you know, if it's a hotel and they're doing it because they're trying to attract tourism, right? The hotel's paying for it. I'm good with that. Yeah. What I'm concerned about is there's one out, you know, right here in Vanita in LTD's next to LTD's bus station in, a, in the parking lot that serves the LTD transfer station in Vanita. Um, that's not, you know, any private agency that has that. That, that I don't know who's who's metering that that station and when somebody plugs in charge it you know what tax entity is paying the bill um but i'm wondering if the actual person charging your car gets charged good question of course if you charge it from your house now i'm i'm in favor uh, you know if you are totally electric that you pay something because you know you're paying for the maintenance of the roads i'm not in favor of having my vehicle tracked yeah. And especially the fact that um, they call it Origo, O-R-E-G-O, um, saying right now you'd pay 1.8 cents per mile. But having followed this for a long time, yeah, it may start out 1.8 cents per mile, but that may be like 4 o'clock in the morning. Like, say, you driving from Benita to Eugene. Driving home at 5 o'clock, it may cost you 4 cents a mile, and if you went over a bridge... Oh, hey, there's a toll that you automatically get billed for. Yeah. So there's just there's just too much uh, thing for abuse. And then, of course, um, that will track you in-state. And if you go over the state lines, and they may have a different rate per mile or something like that. So it's just uh, – I understand where they're coming from, that everybody's getting better gas mileage and the they're getting less money, but to – you know, to, to track you in addition to the way your phone's tracking you, but you know, it's just it's like giving them your credit card, in my opinion. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. You know, it, it, right now, personal information's um, valuable. People buy and sell it all the time, and you know, every time you fill out a warranty card or something like that, that's more about gathering personal information that that company's going to sell on the oh. market. Look um, at book. They they want. Uh, because the political thing, they want a picture of your driver's license. Yeah. 
we trust Facebook, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Facebook, uh, yet they they rail against Georgia's election laws. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah, Don't get me started. Uh, Welcome to the 21st century. Yeah, the the per the per mile charge, it has you know has some sense. You know, weight mile for trucks has been around for a long time, um, so you actually pay for the damage you're doing, rather than just on a uh, basis of how many gallons of, of fuel you actually use. Um, so it, it makes some sense, but you know they're they're trying to capture that right now in registration fees that, you know, if the high mileage vehicles actually have a higher registration fee in Oregon now. Um, but, you know, if they're allowing some of those, quote, electric vehicles that, that, that you know, don't have, pay any gas tax um, to charge for free on the public's dime, I got a problem with that. <laughs> One thing that I'm, I'm trying to find real quick here, they do this in California. If you have a, a diesel vehicle, personal vehicle, and it's over a certain age, they won't let you register it anymore. And I think Oregon is uh, considering something similar. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's been a couple bills about that. They're aging out of the, out of the fleet, um, general fleet and the public anyway, as they, as they die of old age um, and people replace them with new. But... Um, I can't remember which year is it. 2015 was the last year you could get the type two, the generation two diesels, and now we're on generation three. 15 or 18, I can't remember what which year it was, but it, it nationally. So everybody is converting their fleets ultimately over to, to what are considered quote clean diesel, which have almost zero particulate um, and PAH. Um, uh, pollution, which is the big issue, PM25 and, and uh, polyaromatic hydrocarbons, PAAH. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, House Bill 2007 would phase out older diesel engines in trucks over the next 10 years, requiring all medium and heavy-duty trucks registered in Oregon to be upgraded to a 2010 model engine or newer by 2029. Yeah. You mean by medium, but... Uh, the one place that trucks don't get replaced very fast is on the farm. Right. Because farmers can't really come up with that capital all the time, and they let things run forever. And sometimes they're not even used on road. They're just basically used to drive out to the field, throw the bales of hay on, and drive back to the barn. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and you know, they don't really think about how that's going to impact our agricultural community and the cost of food, which is going to affect the cost of living, which is going to make us then the third worst state to retire in in the nation. <laughs> well, I look at it this way. I have a 1982 28-foot motorhome that runs on a 6.2 diesel. And just like the guy in California that had a full-size pickup that he couldn't re-register, you know, what do you do with them? They go straight to the dump? The thing runs great. I mean, I, I don't want to get rid of it because it, it works, and I, I'm poor. <laughs> Years ago, 
Um, I testified in the legislature four or five years ago, it's been a while, on a clean diesel bill. And I had some really good statistics on what was feeding various, you know, the, the two big boogaboos about diesel are particulate matter less than two and a half microns, because that's dangerous to your lungs, and poly aromatic hydrocarbons because they can be carcinogenic, you know, and that's because diesel doesn't burn quite as clean as, as gasoline or methane or hydrogen. Yeah. It has byproducts when it burns. Um, I don't have the testimony in front of me, but diesel is the, is way down the list as far as tons of those pollutants in Oregon per year. You know what the number one, contributor of PM25 and PAH is in Oregon by a massive amount. You, you mean besides the uh, the trophy in Salem? <laughs> yeah, uh, besides some of the folks there. Wildfire. You know, millions of tons of that those pollutants. Second largest home Wood, home heating with wood, you know, is the second largest. Diesel was number three, and number three by orders of magnitude. So my my question was, you know, first of all, we're turning over our fleet anyway, and that proportion of diesel has been going down, as as you can't buy a dirty diesel anymore, new. You know, so as as things age out, we're replacing our fleet. Having some kind of artificial advanced timeline to do that and one of the reasons i was testifying as a county commissioner was we got lots of diesel trucks in our public works department yeah it was going to be unfunded mandate against counties and i was testifying on on, on behalf of the association of oregon counties against the bill um and kind of brought up those issues as like if you want to address pm25 and PAH, you need to better manage our force and prevent wildfire and do a more initial attack on wildfire in, in U.S. Forest Service lands. And you also need to maybe look at helping people convert their home wood heating devices or get, you know, put inserts that are more efficient and less polluting. Subsidize, you know, go that direction. You'll actually have a much bigger impact because that's, it's like, you know, 80% of our pollution in those categories comes from those two issues. Less than 20% was diesel. Exactly. And you hit the nail right on the head is that most people don't keep their vehicles, uh, you know, four or five, six years, unless you're like me and I keep them for 30. Another edition of the Bose Nose Show. Coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira. Thanks for listening and have a great week.